The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In part one and two of this episode, we asked, answered, and discussed ten questions. In this episode, we continue to ask, answer, and discuss important questions regarding the definitions, parameters, and theological significance regarding the creation ordinance of biblical marriage, which by God's grace and mercy, we pray we will receive discerned insight as to the answers which will agree with the whole counsel of God's Word. Continuing. Question 11. Christians like to cite the Bible as God's Word, which they claim is definitive regarding the proper constraints of marriage. Yet, doesn't the Bible have many instances of key biblical heroes who were involved in polygamy? If marriage is so important... Why does God favor these people? It should be noted that the Bible never depicts a single individual, save Jesus, as being perfect. 
The fact is that sin, and to some degree rebellion, was and is the condition of man from Adam to now, with every man, again, save Jesus. Sin and rebellion affect every aspect of creation, including marriage and the sexual relationship intended for marriage between a man and a woman. Consequently, we see divorce, polygamy, incest, rape, child molestation, and sexual relationships between people of the same sex. People often forget that the Bible records those aspects of the fall of man throughout history as part of the story relating God's redemptive plan which unfolds with the Messiah Jesus. When the Bible honestly records these things, it does not mean that God approves of them. They simply occurred. Likewise, God works with and through imperfect people and by His grace imputes righteousness to them by His grace and brings them to perfection via sanctification. While most of the world might agree that polygamy is wrong or immoral, the simple fact is that God never ordained, created, or blessed polygamy. The only arrangement created, ordained, and blessed by God was between a man and a woman. In the end, the bottom line issue is that Scripture makes it clear that God abhors sexual relationships between people of the same sex because it violates His creation ordinance and a design between a man and a woman. Thus, the issue of polygamy and or marriage between people of the same sex is an apples and oranges argument with very little comparison to the heart of the matter. Question 12. Isn't it possible that some people are born with the attraction to the same sex? If so, doesn't this prove that same-sex marriage is natural? since Christians claim that God created man? For those who hold this view, they would be surprised to know that, in part, in some small part, they are correct. Mankind was and is created as the image-bearer of God. However, due to man's choice to sin, man is fallen, and consequently every man one and all alike, are now all born with a common characteristic of that fall. That characteristic is sin and rebellion. Mankind's fallen nature to rebel and sin against God takes on many forms, including his tendency to succumb to immorality, sexual impurity, lust, and unnatural attractions. But we need to see correctly that it is not our fallen nature which God created. Our fallen nature is our heritage due to Adam and Eve's choice to rebel. Sin and rebellion are man's fallen inheritance, not our original image as created by God. It is not uncommon to hear people who are enslaved to their old nature and to sin say, I don't have a choice. I can't help myself. This is who I am, and I can't change it. Again, God, the Bible, and reality all agree. 
No man or woman are able to change their basic nature based upon their own strength, power, or knowledge. Only God can deliver us from our old nature by giving man a new nature born of his spirit by grace through faith in Jesus. Once we have God's power, we are transformed day by day by his indwelling spirit. Our old nature is crucified and buried with Jesus, and we are victorious through his resurrection. For those who disagree and who ultimately refuse God's grace, it is interesting that the result is a never-ending search to find excuses to justify or blame something or someone else for their own nature of sin. Today, we have names for every kind of ailment, every sickness, whether physical or mental. The names we give these things are all too often supposed to legitimize man's choices and his nature and turn them into some illness which requires understanding and pity. They ultimately provide license and relinquishment from any consequences to the decisions we make. Sometimes man goes to the extreme to suggest that what some would label as illness or sickness are in fact to be viewed as just differences of personality. They are the tapestry and diversity of man and all its errancy. We are further told that these divergent behaviors should be seen as beautiful when viewed with an open mind, an open heart, and a spirit of tolerance and understanding. Under this theory, we are supposed to examine people's beliefs and behavior, no matter how depraved and debased they are, and come to the realization that these people are searching for themselves. And as long as they are sincere and doing their best, we need to support and love them. Lastly, should we deign to contradict such a paradigm by suggesting the adoption or application of an ultimate authority, standards, morals, ethics, a code of conduct, the Bible, God's Word, or God, then we who make such suggestions are labeled as the ones who are broken, ill, or in need of correction. The only difference is that since we have the temerity to question the paradigm of secular man, we will at no time receive the luxury of receiving the open mind, open heart, spirit of tolerance, and understanding which the world demands we show them at all times. Question 13. If there are people who don't believe in God, the Bible, or issues of God's authority, so what? How does adult people who are, quote, loving, unquote, one another hurt anyone? Well, if there is no God or ultimate authority, then hurting or not hurting someone else is all relative. Whether what I or anyone else does or doesn't do, labeled as good, bad, or indifferent, is purely a matter of consensus, opinion, percentage, culture, and a myriad of other factors throughout time. In fact, all such words, such as hate, hurt, evil, bad, good, negative, positive, etc., are all completely meaningless. 
In the human philosophy, all such attributes, good or bad, float on the wind, and the only thing that can be said to remain constant about them is that they remain in flux. On the other hand, if there is a God who proclaims ultimate authority, along with the reality of meaning, morals, and beauty, then by His grace we either receive adoption to His authority, or we remain in rebellion against it. So, the real question is, what is the result if a person remains in rebellion against God? Well, in short, unless God steps in to redeem the lost, they remain lost and will be justly accounted guilty due to their sin and rebellion. Ultimately, the lost will experience the consequence of eternal separation and suffering. For those whom God calls to adoption, we will still struggle with sin in the flesh, yet those who are sons indeed will find themselves increasingly chastened by God throughout their life until they repent and are thus sanctified progressively. Unfortunately, sin and rebellion tends to increase exponentially throughout mankind. Those in rebellion take positions of authority in the community, the city, the county, the state, and the nation as a whole. Those virtues which once comprised only personal rebellion and sin now find themselves being adopted and codified into communal and societal norms. Sin and rebellion are not only legal and permissible, but are now protected and extolled as virtues. At long last, what was one man and one woman rebelling is now the overwhelming majority in our midst. Virtue, godliness, righteousness, and morality diminish, and they are increasingly demonized and eventually exterminated. Now, instead of God visiting chastisement and judgment upon an individual, God must do so upon a nation as a whole. God cannot bless an individual or a nation who as a whole maintains, facilitates, or tolerates sin, evil, and or rebellion to fester within its midst. So, regardless of how man redefines terminology and God's word to justify man's rebellion, man is still in rebellion. That man or that nation which collectively rebels against God and his authority will be chastised, judged, punished, and condemned in various ways until that man or that nation collectively repents or is destroyed. God himself verifies this truth in Ezekiel chapter 14, verses 13 and 14. Quote, Son of man, when the land, i.e. nation, people, sinneth against me by trespassing grievously, then will I stretch out my hand upon it, and I will break the staff of the bread thereof, and I will send famine upon it, and I will cut off man and beast from it. Though these three men... Noah, Daniel, and Job were in it, they should deliver but their own souls by their righteousness, saith the Lord God. Unquote. 
Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 summarizes the solution this way, quote, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land, unquote. Question 14. Doesn't the church realize that it is slowly losing its status and relevancy, and that if the church doesn't get on board soon with the rest of the world and stop being so outdated that the church will cease to exist? Well, in all seriousness, it must be asked, since when has Satan or the world worried about the welfare of the church? The question is insincere because the world is only interested in itself and what it wants to do as being right in its own eyes. It wants to be free of the influences of the church and of God and his word. The world is in denial of God and believes that it is through man's efforts, intelligence, enlightenment, and technology that man will usher in his own time of peace, justice, unity, and plenty. But denial of God is not enough. What the world must do is remove any and all reminders which cause them to be convicted of their sin. In the meantime, God desires that his church be salt and light to a dying world. God desires and wants his church to bear witness to his word and his will and to preach repentance to the world who are lost. The two are in conflict and war. By God's power, grace, and mercy, the church is the ultimate winner in the spiritual war between Satan and God. But the victory of the church is not one that the world can understand, nor is it one likely to look like what the worldly secular church would portray. God's church does not win by being relevant, popular, rich, or successful as defined by the business standards of the world. From the first century church to today, there were and remain many of God's people, the church, who have faced intense persecution and adversity from the world around them. The goal was not to survey the world and adopt the world's traditions and habits in order to gain the world's favor. The goal was and is to proclaim the gospel and to redeem as many as possible. As time went on, Satan, sin, and rebellion has crept into the church until, at long last, in some corners, some who call themselves the church, or Christian, are virtually indistinguishable from the fallen world. However, the true church, God's outcalled ones, will, according to Jesus' promise, never completely cease to exist. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 states, quote, And I say also unto thee, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, unquote. So God is not swayed, impressed, or dissuaded by numbers, whether of the world or of the church. 
God's kingdom will not be eventuated by political muscle, by prudent financial planning, by popular decree, by judicial decision, by democratic vote, by lobbying, by consensus, by collective bargaining, by committee, by scientific advancement, or by any single or collective act or acts of man apart from God. Throughout history, God delights in achieving His will and His greatest achievements by the simplest acts of faith, by those few in number, and in the face of the greatest adversity and odds, so that when all is done, the glory, the victory, and the praise go to none but to God alone. Therefore, we must conclude that the church, God's elect, are at their best when circumstances dictate that it must abandon its own strength and wisdom, humble itself, and seek God with its whole mind, body, and spirit. It may very well be that by worldly standards, the church will fail as a business model, in numbers and in every other respect that the world would count as being important. But, as long as the church remains God's outcalled ones, faithful to submit and honor God's word, that church has God's assurance of victory against the world and Satan. The unavoidable and inevitable defeat of Satan, of sin, and of rebellion, and of those who align themselves with them is predicted in Revelation chapter 20, verses 10 through 15. Quote, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a gray white throne, and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books, according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every man according to their works." and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire." Unquote. Question 15. Isn't it true that same-sex relations are different in today's modern world and that the behaviors condemned in the Bible have no bearing on the issue of same-sex relations and marriage today? No. God is not the God of once upon a time. God does not become outdated or need retraining. God is eternal and timeless, both in his nature and in his relationship to his creation, man. Here, the issue that God is talking about in his word is the creation ordinance of marriage between a man and a woman. This is the only model of sexual union which God blesses and sees as good. Any other supposed alternative departs from God's model 
and is not blessed by God. The argument that technology, hygiene, monogamous attitudes, or other virtues which have been adopted and added to same-sex relationships do nothing to remove the underlying fact that this type of relationship is at its foundation a relationship which is in rebellion to God's creation ordinance of marriage. Question 16. Where are we going? What is the fate of marriage? What will happen to the church? What is in store for the world? Remember, as stated earlier, God and Satan are at war. God's outcalled ones, i.e. the church and the world, like every sinner in rebellion, are at bitter enmity with one another. There is no mediation between the two, only polarization and strife. Satan and the world are operating under the delusion that by whatever means they will overcome and defeat God. Yet, historically, we see time and time again that God's redemptive plan is on schedule and he continues to move closer to his appointed time when he will restore, resolve, and judge all people and all things according to his word. Based upon God's word, we have already seen the effects of sin and rebellion upon God's creation ordinance of marriage as well as the church. Even now, we have a growing number of people deluded by Satan, sin, rebellion, the world, and secular teaching. These people twist God's word and ignore or misuse basic theology. In some cases, they have convinced themselves and others that they are the true Christians, while those who hold to God's word faithfully are the, quote, ultra-conservative or, quote, radical Christians, unquote. The proof that they are the true church is supposedly found in the fact that they love and accept everyone, no matter what they do or think. We are not the church because we have become radical, because we refuse to accept and embrace those who are in rebellion to God, and that is not loving. Our church has the audacity to forbid facilitating and blessing those who would join themselves in same-sex marriage. Our church has the gall to deprive those who are in glaring rebellion from participating in Christ's communion, and the list goes on. The question is, where do those who truly obey God and not man draw the line? Do we wait until we are living in the new version of Rome and the government forbids prayer and worship of God? Do we wait until Satan shows up at the front door and wants to assume ownership of the church? When did God change his stance that the church should be salt and light to a dying world? But the church of the world wants the favor of the world, so in order to accomplish this, the church of the world has become a friend to the world, while simultaneously it has become lost to God. 
the church of the world is so deceived that they apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Then and now, while proposing that God's church needs to do likewise to repair all the supposed damage that has been done to all those who are in rebellion. This fully demonstrates that Satan never rests. He is always at work to undermine God and his church. It comes as no surprise that Satan would and does seek to attack and destroy God's creation ordinance of marriage. It is also not shocking to realize that Satan seeks to compromise as much of the church through vain worldly philosophy as possible. Whether some realize it or not, the latest philosophy of secular humanism which has been decided and adopted by the Supreme Court opens the door for far more than the issue at present. If one group can stand on the Constitution to say that they have the right to be legally married because they were born with same-sex attraction, or because it's not nice for government entities to deny marrying those whom you, quote, love, unquote, then this same argument can and likely will be used for anyone. For example, why am I denied marrying multiple men or women? Can I not love more than one person at the same time? What if I was born with that desire? Surely that makes it okay. If someone loves another person or was born that way, then what legal right does someone have to say no simply because the other person is uh, 12, 10, or 8 years old? Or, wait a minute, you say, that's not legal. What you're talking about are children here. Well... First of all, recent history has shown us that the issue of, quote, legality, unquote, is one which is driven by time, opinion, culture, consensus, and percentage. Thus, if legality is an issue which is relative in one area, and there is no benchmark of ultimate authority in one area, then logic and ever-popular fairness doctrine dictate that it must be absent everywhere. If it exists in one area, then it must be present in every area. Others will argue that polygamy, or if nothing else, children, the elderly, and those who are handicapped by diminished capacity be protected at all cost from those who are immoral. However, I would point out that since we have effectively legally rejected the use of morality as an argument which determines whether same-sex marriage is permissible or not, then we must also reject morality as an argument in every other proposed marriage arrangement. Based upon God's word, what we know is that things will grow progressively darker, more rebellious, evil, and perverse. Yes, there will be pockets of revival now and then. There will continue to be those who come to repentance and salvation through God's grace. The true church will continue to withstand these forces through prayer, through patience, diligence. Some battles will be won, 
Others will be lost. However, it will be likely that before all is finished, at some time, the true church while on earth will have to return to its roots, where those who are faithful are forced to worship in secret, in their homes or elsewhere, as did the early church. There will likely come a time again where some will be forced to choose imprisonment, even martyrdom, or renouncing of one's faith. The government in that day will likely be like the government of Rome, who saw Christians as a threat, and will persecute Christians like another branch of domestic terrorists. The undiluted preaching of God's word will be a crime of hate speech, punishable by fines, incarceration, retraining, and ultimately, if unsuccessful, death. Yet, through all of this, the true church is victorious because suffering and physical death can never rob us of eternal life. Paul addresses the spirit of this issue by asking the following rhetorical question in Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. His answer to the question gives us God's hope and assurance for the believer and for the church. Quote, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, neither height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Unquote. This concludes this episode. Please join me again for part four. Now, if you have any questions about God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com that's p-a-s-t-o-r underscore y-e-s-h-u-a at yahoo.com thank you for listening Trust in Him.